How's everyone this morning? Are you well? Such a privilege to be here this morning, and um, I really want you to know that uh, there's so many wonderful people uh, that call this place home that I feel home to. And uh, I think that uh, one of the things that we recognise in the, in the body of Christ in our city of Perth is that we're all family. No matter where we go to on a Sunday morning, we're all family because Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, and we share His blood. And uh, Mark is one of the most encouraging people uh, in my world. Uh, if I wasn't leading a church, I'd probably come to King's Cross Church. Um, I think that the, the privilege of knowing people who are, sit in the seat of leadership, you can relate in a way that encourages one another. And it's so important uh, in, a, in, a, in a role that sometimes can be quite lonely. Um, so thank you for having us here today. Really privileged to be here. We are entering the Easter week ahead of us. Easter is next week. Uh, seems like it's come around really quickly. And I think our hearts need to be thinking around the space. How do I prepare my heart for what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, what he has accomplished by his resurrection? Uh, that, that preparation, sometimes when we approach Easter, we can feel like it's just information just coming at us. Like, uh, that's right, I'm being reminded of the story, the Good Friday story. But we don't just want information when we come to this story. We want formation. We want transformation. We want to allow the story of Good Friday to transform our hearts so we actually become more like Christ. And that is something we need to lean into. So as you're leaning this morning, be asking that very question, how does this form me? How does this shape me? How does this not just increase my history class lesson on what the Good Friday story is about, but actually how do I form into the likeness of Christ? And so today we are going to do a scripture um, that is essentially leading into um, the, the Passion Week, the, the week of the suffering of Christ. And we're going to be jumping into Luke 22 today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Luke 22. Uh, we're going to start from verse 1. But to give you a bit of a backdrop, what's been happening in the last few chapters, Jesus has been uh, essentially talking to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders have been losing their, their war on words. Um, Jesus is gaining influence and the religious leaders are a little bit frustrated because by uh, the time we get to this moment in Luke 22, they are needing to do something about the fact that they are losing influence. The religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, they're losing a war on words. They're losing uh, actually potentially losing money because of offerings, people are leaving the institution, the religious institution, and they want to do something about it. The religious leaders actually want to go ahead and begin to look towards how do we trap Jesus, how do we kill Jesus. And so we pick it up from verse 1. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. This is a public relations nightmare for the Jewish religious leaders. 
They know that if they apprehend Jesus in public, in the height of Passover, in Jerusalem, a riot is going to ensue. There's going to be a a groundswell of support for Jesus, and they need to get Jesus in an isolated way and apprehend him. And now they have a way to do that. They have their mole, they have their inside man, and they are delighted. To use Caleb Gray's word, they are stoked, because they now have a way to avoid the riot. And so they now are seeing a pathway to apprehend Jesus. Judas is one of uh, Jesus' key leadership team. And so they've got an inside man. And uh, it's interesting that Luke here mentions that Satan entered Jesus. And when you hear those words, it can kind of be, for the uninformed, a little bit like scary because you're thinking, well, Judas must have been this innocent bystander. And suddenly Satan has just grabbed him and controlled him and manipulated him. And I think the main reason why Luke uh, places this in this depiction is because Luke's wanting us to realize that this is not just an historical event that's unfolding. This is not just a physical event. This is just not something that is happening in a historical landscape. There's actually something else going on, and it's called the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is real. There's a war battling in the physical, and there's a war battling in the spiritual. Now, Make sure we're clear on this point that we can compare God's power to Satan's power. Satan does have a power, but when we talk about God's power, there's no competition. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a no-win scenario for Satan. But he puts it in there, and I think we've got to be aware that Satan only has power to the degree that we give him a foothold in our lives. Um, we're not clearly shown here by Luke what that foothold is. Um, But some of you may be aware that in John 12, uh, um, Judas is described as someone who is thieving. He's he's actually got a bit of a greed for money problem. So it's highly likely that it was actually money that was causing there to be a foothold in his life for Satan to get access to his life. And so if you're one of the disciples, if you're one of the, the 12 and you're closely drawing your expectation towards the fulfillment of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about it more and more. You're wondering how this is going to occur. At this juncture that we just read, the disciples aren't really aware that Judas is betraying uh, Jesus. Jesus, I think, is aware. But if they were aware, they would certainly feel like this is not going to plan. This is not going to the way we thought this should go. Uh, If they had known, they would have gone, no, actually... I had a plan, but Jesus, this is not going to the plans that I have. And I think there's an interesting point that can be made here as we think about the plans of God. One of the things that we see in the biblical narrative of this time is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge. Nothing is happening to Jesus by surprise. Uh, When we think about the plans of God, we can also consider that Jesus has a plan, And sometimes we invite Jesus to come into our plans. Sometimes we invite Jesus to be a part of what we're doing, rather than recognizing that all of us are a part of his plan. It's his plans and purposes that we get invited into. And his plans and purposes are good. They're trustworthy. They are helpful. And we shouldn't be taken by surprise when our trust is leaning into Jesus. I think about Peter. Peter's had an interesting journey. So he gets asked, well, the disciples get asked, by Jesus, this million-dollar question, who do you say I am? And Peter pipes up and goes to the top of the class 
and says, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, that's correct. But flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. Uh, it's been revealed by the Spirit through the Father. The very next sentence, Jesus is describing to Peter, well, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. And then he goes from the top of the class to the bottom of the class, and he says to Peter, hey, get behind me, Satan. Not a really good thing to hear. And then Peter goes away, and he denies Jesus. Uh, things aren't looking great. And so he's, he's a guy who doesn't seem to have his finger on the pulse, doesn't have, seem to have his finger on what Jesus' plan actually is, it's interesting when we get to Acts chapter 2, it's suddenly dawning on him where he says these words, all of this was God's divine plan. It takes time for us to recognize what God's plan is and what our plan is and recognize sometimes those two things aren't aligned. I suppose part of my heart this morning is in resting in this sense of plan is to help you to get your default mode of looking at life not so being much part of, hey, Jesus, what, can you become part of my plan? But can I position and posture my heart to be one of, hey, Jesus, I want to be part of your plan. I want to be part of your story. And that's the most beautiful thing, I think, where we find trust, that Jesus' plan can be trusted for your life. And if you're a parent here, I want to say this, is that Jesus can be trusted. His plan is good for your children, for your children. We need to hear that as parents sometimes. Now, you can trust His plan because you can trust His Word. And I love this part of the Scripture's description of the preparation of Passover because Jesus gives some very specific descriptions about this and He's absolutely correct in what He describes. So we're going to go to this next part from verse 7. And it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Passover. Quick uh, recap, if you haven't been updated with what the Passover is all about. Passover is a part of a religious celebration for the Jewish people, the Israelites, who remember the time when they were slaves in Egypt. Now God, using Moses and the team were trying to twist the arm of Pharaoh. God sent plague after plague trying to twist the arm of Pharaoh to let his people go, and he didn't. But the final plague, the most devastating plague, a spirit of death would pass over the whole nation of Israel, and the firstborn of every family would perish. Not a great story. How do you see God's love in all of that? Well, stay tuned. What God did was he had a plan. He says to his people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, and use the blood of that lamb and paint that blood over the doorposts and lintels of the door of your home. And when the spirit of death comes that night, it will pass over and your family will be unharmed. You will survive. You will flourish. You will live. And they celebrate this every single year at a time um, we call Passover. Now, What's interesting is last night, the uh, annual celebration of Passover began last night. 
And would you believe this year it ends, it's a week-long celebration actually, and it ends on Easter Sunday this year. It's not always the way that, that, that timing kind of works, but just interesting timing this particular year. And so for pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, so they didn't live in Jerusalem, they were coming to Jerusalem, they needed some place to prepare their Passover meal celebration. And there wasn't Airbnb in Jerusalem at the time. And so what would happen is you would have people who had rooms available, how they make a little bit of money on the side was to actually rent out their spaces in order that people, families could come to Jerusalem and share in the Passover. And so Jesus is laying all this detail, even to the point where the man carrying a jar of water, go find this bloke carrying water, go to his house and you're going to see everything that you need to see. And Jesus says all this detail, and we find it just as Jesus had told them. And so whatever Jesus says comes true. It's critically important to understand that. Whatever Jesus says comes true. I know it seems like simple logic or simple phrasing, but sometimes I really think we need to get that into our hearts. What Jesus says comes true. It's important. Because he says some very simple things, like we've just read, that come true. And then he said some crazy stuff, like, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the grave. And so I think one of the things we need to consider is he sets up the reliability of the bigger things that he says by being accurate in the detail of the smaller things that he says. There's credibility when you see the smaller things accurate to the big statements that he makes. And I, I, I really want to have my heart trust him in the small things, the big things, the whole things of life, in order that my heart finds rest and peace in His Word that is true. His Word is true. Your words, my words, to the best of our intentions, not so much. Right? We try our best, right? We try our best to, uh, you know, make vows and commitments and with the best intentions, but our words are not a sure thing. Our words aren't always certain. But Jesus' words, trustworthy. Take it to the bank, so to speak. Now, some of you may be under the misconception that your relationship with Jesus rests and lands on your professions of faith, your statements of faith, your pronouncements you've made, the commitments you've made, the vows that you've made to Jesus, the, th- the pledges of obedience that you made. And somehow we think that your word governs your relationship with Jesus when the absolute opposite is true. Is everyone picking up what I'm putting down there? Sometimes we think that it's what I say that dictates my relationship with Him. But the opposite is true. It's everything He says that dictates my relationship with Him. For instance, Jesus, you didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you, Right? It's Him who speaks into our hearts. Every one of you has had an encounter of that description, and if you haven't, we're praying that you do, that you have heard His Word in your heart, and your heart has responded. His Word is dependable. His Word is bankable. It's the Word of God that sustains you. It's the reliability of Jesus that keeps us going. It's Him being true, dependable, reliable, without flaw, without error, without fail, that keeps us in His good graces and love. The trustworthiness of His Word in our lives actually is the very thing that creates safety, acceptance, and joy. And then from that place, the response of that 
is a loving obedience towards him. But he initiated, he initiated, his words initiated. There's two scriptures that just uh, land this for us really clearly. It's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And it says, the Son, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Here's the point, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In the category of all things is you, just in case you're clear. It's not like you and then another category called all things. It's like you are, all, you are in the category of all things. And after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When you trust this, that his word sustains all things, Romans 8.38 makes so much sense, which says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation. Remember the category all creation? Guess who's a part of that? You. So you can't even separate you from the love of God that's towards you in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? Like... It's his word that is bankable. And his word in the small things is true. His word in the big things is true. And his words today that say, I love you, is true. Do you rest in that space? Do you find peace in that space? Will you repent when you have made your relationship about your words, your vows, your prayers? And turn and recognize, oh Lord, help me to receive your word Because your promises are true, they're reliable, they're trustworthy, they're good. Does that make sense? As we move into this depiction of the Last Supper, we see communion being described here for the very first time. And we re- you would regularly take communion as a church family. Actually, one of the two sacraments of the church, baptism and communion, is what we do together as a church family. Now, my, my fear here is that you may approach communion and ask a question that says, what does communion mean to me? But really, we've got to ask a question, what does communion, what does the Lord's Supper mean to Jesus? Because it means a lot to Jesus. And he says it so right here in Luke 22, verse 14. And it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired... Turn to the person next to you and say, earnestly desired. Earnestly. So what does that mean? He's passionately hanging out for this dinner upstairs at the guy who carries the water jar's house, right? His house. He's passionately desiring to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I believe Jesus is fully aware about what he's going to accomplish. As he looks around the table, he sees these disciples that he's been walking with for three years, and he's looking at them going, I'm just about to accomplish something that will cause their sins to be forgiven forever, that will cause the dividing barrier between God and them to be totally dismantled, that they would have a living, active relationship with the Father in heaven, just like he does. He is so excited about people connecting with his father in a very similar way, the same way the way he connects with his father. He's looking forward to that. He's looking forward to their sin being dealt with and them all becoming the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, in himself. Don't forget that when you take communion today, and we're going to be doing that, it means a lot to Jesus. It means so much to Jesus that he gave his own life for this. 
He is earnestly desiring to have this meal with us today. He loves you. We pick it up from verse 17. It says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is, mine on the t- is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Understanding what Jesus is saying here, you really have to have a panoramic view of the biblical narrative to understand the significance of what he's told his disciples. This meal they're having is about to change everything because it's through his body and through his blood, his work on the cross on our behalf. And it's something that's so profound that you can miss very easily if you don't dwell on the words, it's the blood of the new covenant. It's the blood of the new covenant. We've got to let our hearts rest there because it's the word covenant that makes communion so beautiful. If we took a tour through the Old Testament, which we won't today, we could uh, be here for a long time. But one of the things you begin to see and established, there's a pattern. There's a pattern that God creates fellowship through covenant. And then God creates covenant through sacrifice, and then he confirms that covenant, that fellowship, that connection with a meal. We see that pattern throughout the biblical narrative all the time. And so that pattern, again, is God establishes fellowship through sacrifice, and then he, cele- he celebrates it, he confirms it with a meal. Some of you were at the wedding yesterday. A covenant, a marriage is beautiful because a covenant is a, a, a loving relationship that has no conditions. It's a choice, agreement to love. A covenant is made. And guess what you do after the, the marriage ceremony? You have a meal. You confirm the covenant that was just made with a meal. This has been going on since the dawning of history. And that's what we engage in. And funny enough, uh, marriage is a little bit more sacrificial than people realize you know, someone's dying and giving up their will for the other. You see, there's a sacrifice going on that gets shown and revealed at a marriage ceremony. And so at the Passover, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is inaugurating a new covenant in his own blood. And it's been a while since a new covenant has been given by God. And when he's at this table, he's literally saying, hey, you know Yahweh, the one who made covenants before? Yes, I'm just like him. I'm actually him. I'm Lord. I'm God. And I'm making a new covenant with you today. Newsflash. He's creating a covenant in his own blood. And guess what he does? He seals it with a meal. Just like in Exodus 24, he says, eat my body, drink my blood, because I'm about to go to the altar to be sacrificed. In effect, when he eats the last Passover with his disciples, right, he reinterprets its meaning in light of the coming kingdom. And so the Passover meal itself points to a new exodus. So when he says, this is my body, he would have taken the bread, right? But he's taken the Passover bread. He's taken the matzah bread, the unleavened bread. 
And he says, just as this bread represents for the Israelites, the Jewish people, a movement from slavery to freedom, I'm telling you, this here is my body. And in the same way, that movement from slavery to freedom for all eternity, for all humanity, for everyone who believes, this is an earth-shaking historical moment in human history where God came down and said, I'm making a pathway for every one of humanity to know me through my body and no longer be a slave to sin, no longer be a slave to the slave master, sin, but be free and free indeed. And so when he takes the cup, he says, this is the cup of, the, of a new covenant in my blood. As soon as you say the word blood in a Passover meal, you're immediately thinking of the blood of the lamb. You're immediately thinking, hey, that same blood that was the rescue for me in reason why I'm celebrating Passover, that same blood is the blood that's not just going to rescue me in a Passover sense, as we remember Passover, but this blood is going to rescue me from sin, from slavery, from death for the rest of eternity, not just for Jewish people, but for every single one of us. Such a powerful picture as he takes those two elements and declares, this is what my sacrifice will do. The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment, it's an enhancement of the Passover where the climactic redemptive work of God's experience through Jesus Christ at the table. But the table is a place of celebration. Have you ever seen a, uh, a um, wedding reception that's really like downcast and a little bit, uh, you know, you're thinking, well, I don't know if this is, well, maybe it's more like a funeral. Than a, you've never seen that, right? At the table is a place of celebrating the communion, the connection, the fellowship that we have around the table. The table's a great place to be. And Jesus says, we are now celebrating at the table the fact that the sacrifice at the altar is now complete. And so when we take communion together, which we will in a minute, allow it to be a celebration. Allow it to be a place of celebrating the work that Jesus has done at the cross. We're just going to continue on one last point as we bring this home. Luke goes on to use an interesting discussion right now. And uh, it's a bit of a dispute, actually, about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? And we pick it up from verse 24. A dispute arose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, Luke's got this happening at the Passover table. No other writers have this happening at the Passover table which I, I can understand why, because if that was true, and I'm not saying it's not, but what an awkward scenario for that discussion to happen. He's just made this massive biblical proportions, historical statement about the covenant, and now let's have a discussion about who is the greatest. Newsflash, not you, him. I just think it's very funny. Um, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is, not, is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Talking about himself. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom 
and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. He's talking to Peter here, remember. Simon was his old name. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go to you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, trying not to laugh. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. So Luke is the only gospel writer who puts and places this depiction of having happened at the, at the Last Supper. And I think regardless of whether that happened historically or not, he's doing this for a reason. And the reason I think is really important. When we think about the New Covenant, and we think about your personal faith, you apply it to yourself. You think about your forgiveness, your joy, your salvation, your peace. I think Luke is writing this in here to try and move the lens to more, more of the fact that what does this new covenant do and how does it affect community? How does it affect how we operate together as a family? And so there's three kind of thoughts I have around this to bring this home today that these are marks of a new radical community that this new covenant sets up for us. The first one is intimate family, intimate family. Something that can be really easily missed when we read the Passover depiction is that Jewish families would gather in biological family groups to celebrate Passover because that was a depiction of what happened originally in Egypt, okay? It was family groups, households, and Jesus here has the audacity to pull the disciples away from their family units to gather a group of people who are the most different people on the face of the earth. Remember, there's a bunch of fishermen. There's a political zealot, which means he's like fight the power, right? He's like, he's this guy. And then there's this tax collector there, right? And they're the most different types of people. And they're all around the table, biologically unrelated. And Jesus is now conferring on them a status of family because they're around the Passover table together. It's a really interesting picture that I, I, I do think we've got to be aware that if we only are around people in our community who look the same as me, are in the so, same socioeconomic status as me, the same season as life as me, they look the same, they, they wear the same flowery shirts, short sleeves. If they, if they look all the same, we've got a reason to ask the question whether we fully embrace the impact of the new covenant fully. The more different we are, the better, because our difference actually confirms the fact that the new covenant we sit in is real and the unity we find in Jesus is absolutely authentic. So you've got a group of a bunch of mitzvahs that how did these people get into a room together? You go, oh, the gospel, oh, the new covenant. That's what, you, that's what we should be feeling, right? And that's a, that's a great thing. So when we gather, we actually, as a church family, no matter how you're gathering, we are always making the invisible visible. What is the invisible element? The invisible element is saying, we are one because of Jesus. We are family because of Jesus. And as we gather, as we share the table, as we share communion, we are making that invisible truth visible to the world around us. And that is a powerful statement to the world around us. Does that make sense? So that's intimate family. The next one is radical society or a countercultural community, an alternative human society. 
And this argument about who is the greatest, Luke brings in this picture of benefactors. And that, that word benefactor, when you read it, it kind of sticks out in the text. You kind of go, what? what? Why is he talking about that? Because a lot of the time as human beings, we have a tendency to relate to someone because of what that someone gives us. I'm wanting to relate to you because you are smart, beautiful, financially secure, you've got some reputation, and the more I relate to someone of that ilk, the more I'm receiving something on the, on the other side of that. Does that make sense? Like I'm the beneficiary, and I'm only hap- ha- helping bene- benefact- beneficiaries. I'm the benefactor, but I'm receiving something. And if you position yourself in that way, if your community operates that way, you're operating in the way the world operates. And Jesus says, followers of mine, communities of mine, don't operate that way. And the reason why he says that, he says, I'm going to confer on you a kingdom so you don't need to acquire anything from someone else because you are the most richest person on the planet because you have the keys of the kingdom. He's saying, don't operate like that. Be someone who indiscriminately loves because you have received the love of Jesus to such a degree that you can love the way he has loved you. Indiscriminately. That's what marks a radical society. Number three, I'm going to introduce a new word to you today. Uh, it's called, the word is meritocracy. Everyone say meritocracy. So what are you thinking? What is a meritocracy? Uh, meritocracy is you make leadership of community based on someone's merits. Okay, so someone is very uh, merit-worthy, i.e. they perform very well, they're very successful. We usually give them leadership. Have you noticed that in our society? But Jesus is setting up not a meritocracy. He's setting up a reverse meritocracy. Everyone say reverse meritocracy. Yeah, good, because I don't want you to think that this is what Jesus is setting up, a meritocracy. No, he's setting up a reverse one. And so he turns to, to Peter, who's the future leader of the church, right? And guess what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, hey, Peter, you know why? You know how you're going to be like the strengthener of the brothers? You're going to be the leader of the church? Uh, the reason is, is because your record is so impeccable, because your performance is flawless. Actually, only the best leaders for the Christian church. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. What he says is, Simon, Simon, you're going to fail me tonight. Your cowardice, your self-absorption, your weakness, your lack of integrity, your denial of me will be laid bare before everyone to see, including yourself. And when you live like that, you're actually playing into the world of darkness that pervades the world. And the leader of the world of darkness, Satan himself, is going to want to have you when you live like that. But, but Peter, Jesus says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to hold on to you. And then it says these very important words that I tried to exaggerate when I read it. Um, he says, when you have turned back, that word turned back is actually saying when you have repented, when you have turned back, strengthen the brothers. So in the world, we appoint leaders who are the biggest succeeders. But in God's kingdom, the leaders are the biggest repenters. And this is the upside-down picture of the community that you want to be a part of. If you've got really broken people who have repented, received Christ, and they have got a story to tell of the goodness of God in the midst of the brokenness of their lives, they're the sorts of people you want leading a community. You don't want the best. You want the worst. Who have received the grace of God and lean on the God so much that they're like, I've only got him and no one else. 
And that is what marks a new covenant in his blood community that is a radical society to be a part of. Do you want to be a part of a community like that? I do. That's where real life is found. So as we bring this uh, home right now, I'm not going to read this, but really interestingly, at the end of the reading, not that I've read this part, but it's in Luke 22:37. You can read it later. Jesus ends this whole moment of the table telling the disciples that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. So all of the Old Testament, all of scripture is being fulfilled in this moment, in Jesus' death, his resurrection at the table. And then he goes ahead and quotes the end of Isaiah 53, verse 12. The end of Isaiah 53. He says, And I am numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Luke is showing us at the end of this moment at the table, he quotes Isaiah 53 in a highly charged Jewish community setting called the Passover to reframe what the Passover is all about. And so as we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper, I want to read Isaiah 53 to us together. And I pray by the power of the Spirit that He is revealing Jesus to you right now. So everyone, just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute as I read this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing of his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, thank you today as we prepare our hearts for this Easter season. God, we want to have that same posture of remembrance of what Jesus, you have done on the cross. Holy Spirit, all of us have had a, a degree of illumination about what the cross means. We want to be formed by the cross, but there is still formation to happen in every single one of us. And so, Jesus, as we share in your body, as we share in your blood, as we take the wafer, as we take the bread, as we take the juice today, God, I thank you 
that your Holy Spirit in us would illuminate the work of Christ to a greater degree, that we would be so melted by the love of God revealed in the love of Jesus that we couldn't help but respond and sink into the Father's arms even more. Jesus at the table, help us to celebrate what you have accomplished. Help our heads not to look down in defeat, but have our heads held high in the victory that is Jesus's. Jesus, you won the victory over sin and death. And so, Holy Spirit, in this holy moment where we receive the elements today, God, we remember you. We remember Jesus. We remember, Jesus, your work on the cross. And Holy Spirit, help us to personalize that today. That this would not just be a historical moment, but this would be a revelatory moment that forms us deep within. In Jesus' name, amen.